Hey, creep. I want to tell you a tale, if you're ready to hear it. It may not be pleasant. It may not end the way you want it to. But this story is gripping and as fascinating as it is shockingly horrifying. Are you ready? My name's Cole, and you're listening to Tales. There are more than a few scary stories, or thriller films, that start with a menacing phone call, or an anonymous letter in the mail. It sets the scene and lets the viewer know that they are in for an escalation in disturbing images and tense moments. But this isn't just reserved for the movie theater and date nights binging popcorn. No, it can happen in real life just as easily. Chris Coleman was a deeply religious man. He was born in 1977 to two pastors, and like any pastor's kid before him and after, was thrown right into the pews of the church. As he grew, he felt the call of the military and his patriotic bones began to ache, and on the day he graduated from high school nearly, he went and enlisted in the Marines. And it was a good thing that he did, because through the military, Chris Coleman met the love of his life and future wife Sherry Weiss, who was enlisted and serving in the Air Force at the time. The two instantly hit it off and quickly came to love one another and their shared Christian sensibilities and love of country. So at the age of 20, Chris Coleman in 1977 married Sherry Weiss, and they soon had two baby boys, Garrett and Gavin. Life was good. Chris and Sherry were living the suburban Midwest dream, both young parents who had served their country living in Columbia, Illinois with their children comfortably and quietly. After Chris left the service, though, it was time for a new job, one that could utilize the skills he had gained in the service and also one that could support his young and growing family. He had known Joyce Myers as a family friend to his parents from a very young age. She was, apparently, a world-famous televangelist who traveled the country and globe spreading the word of give me money. <laughs> I mean, Jesus Christ. Joyce Myers was looking for a bodyguard, one who she could trust and had the necessary skills, and she was willing to pay for that ease of mind. Chris, who she'd known since he was little and fresh out of the service, seemed the perfect fit. So she hired Chris Coleman and set him up with a salary of $100,000 a year as her personal bodyguard, traveling the world alongside her. While working for Joyce Myers, Chris met an incredible number of people and shook hands with some and tossed others to the side if they came too close to Joyce, or seemed to pose a threat. Given the sheer number of people they'd encountered regularly, it would only make sense that Chris Coleman was bound to make enemies in his heavy-handed job. On November 14, 2008, Chris began receiving emails from destroychris at gmail.com. Your family is done, read one, while another read, I'm sure this will make it to someone in the company. If you donkeys are like any other company, this will be someone's account. 
pass this on to Chris. Tell Joyce to stop preaching the lies, or Chris's family dies. If I can't get to Joyce, then I will get to someone close to her. And if I can't get to him, then I will kill his wife and children. And then, yet another email. I know you all got my email. You think I'm full of it. Just wait. I will shoot them with my 40 caliber. Kill them all. I am so sick of women like her taking everyone's cash so she can fly her jet and pamper her white self. Damn you all. During the Houston conference, I will kill them all as they sleep. And as if these messages weren't chilling enough, the sender of the messages decided email was maybe too impersonal. It had to be more direct, more personal to Chris himself. And so one of the messages made its way to his mailbox at the end of his driveway. Whoever destroy Chris at Gmail was, they knew where he lived, where his family and children slept. The threats to his family must have been running through his head. This was real. This wasn't a complaint sent with the click of a button. It was a letter to his home now. It was tactile, something he could feel. Chris and his family were being stalked by a psychopathic and hateful person. So Chris filed a police report. And then the last message he would receive arrived on April 27th. The letter ended with, This is my last warning. Your worst nightmare is about to happen. It just so happened that the Colemans lived directly across the street from a detective sergeant with the Columbia PD, who they had always been more than friendly with and was willing to set up a camera in his house to watch the Coleman home. He even petitioned the Columbia PD successfully to set up around-the-clock patrols to ensure the safety of Chris and his family. But despite their best efforts, they were unable to catch or even see anybody that might look like they could be stalking the Coleman seeking revenge. On May 5th, 2009, Chris woke early and got ready for his day. He had a little breakfast and a coffee and then grabbed his duffel bag full of gym clothes and threw it in the back seat of his car before leaving home to exercise at the gym for the day. Roughly an hour passed as Chris Coleman worked up a sweat. Working out wasn't only to facilitate his job, but a way to release the anxiety and stress of the world. And he'd certainly had a lot of stress as of late, considering his family was being stalked. But even in the gym, Chris couldn't shake the uneasy feeling that followed him around. The feeling that something was always wrong. Chris dialed the number of his neighbor, the detective, who he'd come to rely on to be a diligent watchdog of his home, and informed the detective that he was unable to contact his wife, which was anything but normal. She'd always picked up his calls or answered his texts and asked him if he could please pop on over and check on his wife and children. The detective, who thankfully lived a short walk across the street, walked out his door leaving it unlocked behind him and made his way over to the Coleman home at almost 7am to perform a welfare check. He hadn't seen anyone coming or going from the home except for Chris and felt sure that perhaps Sherry Coleman and the children were just still sleeping. As Chris sped home from the gym, the detective found the entirety of his family dead, all except Chris who arrived shortly after. 
31-year-old Sherry, 11-year-old Garrett, and 9-year-old Gavin had all been strangled brutally and murdered in their beds. Sherry had a black eye and looked as if she had put up a fight against the killer. The walls were adorned with red spray paint that spelled out hateful messages. It covered almost every wall and seemed frantic and psychotic, and the sight of it was uncomfortable and foreboding. This could only be the work of one individual, the same sick person who had written the disgusting and vile emails, which was the same individual who had sent letters directly to the Coleman residence. Who was it? Who could have been responsible for these terrible acts? When Chris arrived home, he was followed shortly thereafter by the full parade of police and ambulance. He jumped out of his car, seeing police who had already arrived at the scene hovering by the front door. He strode anxiously up to them, knowing already what had happened, feeling the dread rise inside him. When told his family was dead, Chris didn't even ask why. He didn't plead to know how. He couldn't even be bothered to push past police, already there to see his family and say his last goodbyes telling them how much he loved them. No, he simply walked out into his front yard and put his face into his hands inside. Obviously in shock though, right? Everyone deals with grief and shock differently, so we can't blame him, creeps, can we? Chris Coleman was loaded into the back of the ambulance and they started driving him to the hospital when an EMT noticed scratches on his arm. When asked, Chris stared him blankly in the eyes and then violently punched the gurney he sat on over and over and over and then looked back at the EMT and informed him he'd gotten the scratches from punching the gurney. But wait, what? Chris had the scratches before, but he claimed he had just gotten them in that moment by punching the gurney. Something didn't seem right. Police were quick to the scene, quick to act, and quick to investigate. They would not let, could not let this terrible tragedy slip away from them. Chris initially told investigators that he had been working the evening before for his ministry as he did more often than not, before heading home to his wife and children. He went to sleep and the next morning woke early to go to the gym. But... Remember that camera we talked about? The one set up across the street, the one which the detective had installed to watch the house for suspicious activity? According to Chris Coleman's account of events, that morning when he left the house and everything was fine, and his wife and children whom he'd kissed goodbye were all alive and asleep in their beds when he left at 5.43 a.m. according to the camera timestamps, which was exactly one hour before he called his detective neighbor to check on his loving family. But when investigators arrived to the Coleman home, they were very easily able to discern that the truth was Sherry, Garrett, and Gavin were dead long before Chris ever left his house. It was suspicious how the facts in Chris's story contradicted each other, and they were quick to bring Chris into a formal questioning session. Well, otherwise known as an interrogation. 
Chad. Um, when when you left the house this morning, was your wife alive? Oh yeah. Um, what would you say if I told you I, that, that I don't think she was? I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. I mean, I think she was. I mean, she was. Okay. She was laying right beside me. And I'm not doubting that. I'm not doubting that, that you were there. I'm not doubting that you care. But I am I am doubting that she was alive when you left this morning. Physically, um, what we have are different ways to tell how long a person's been deceased. That was done. And what do you think that showed? I don't know. I guess the time frame when I was gone. I mean... No, you guess wrong. Chris, we, we need to get this resolved. Okay? That you can't argue with physical evidence. Right? I'm not trying to argue with it. All right. What, what I'm telling you is there is no other explanation. There's no other reason that the information we have would support what you're telling us. That they can't. They can't. You've told us a story and we've gone over it numerous times. Right. You know what? We walk out and say, Justin, maybe, maybe we missed this. Let's go in and talk to him about this and just make sure that we're not missing something. Let's give him every opportunity to tell us exactly what happened and, and maybe we're missing something. Right. So that's why we go out and we come back in and we go out and we come back in. Right. I did have to use the restroom. That was legitimate. But we go out and we come back in. And we felt very comfortable that we were giving you every opportunity to tell us something that was going to contradict the information that we had. Mm -hmm. All right, we, we've got this information, you're saying it, and, and, and we're giving you opportunity to, to give us something contrary to what you told us before, so that, okay, yeah, all right, that would make sense. That hasn't happened. Just that that, that hasn't happened. happened. Listen, man, she wasn't alive. She was alive. She was. She was. She was laying right beside me. To me. We can go back and forth with this all day long, but the physical evidence doesn't lie. She was. She was not alive when you left this morning. The children weren't alive when you left this morning. Yes, they were. No, come on, Chris. They we got We got to get over this. Now, there's reasons. There's reasons, and that's what we're. That's the point we're at. I want to hear the reasons. Now is when we need to find out what happened, man. It's so important. You're at a great point to be able to help us to try to figure this out. We already have it. We, we already know what happened. We need to know why it happened. I don't right, know what listen, to tell you. Listen, no, you do, you do know what to tell us. No, I don't. Come on, Chris. She was, she was not alive when you left. The children were not alive when you left. You know that's true, and I know that's true. No, it is. We need to clear this up now. We need to clear it up now. Did something happen? What happened? Nothing what happened. On, what was going on in your life, Chris? Because I can't buy what you're saying. The physical evidence does not lie, Chris. It does not. She was not alive when you left, period. The physical evidence does not lie, man. What do you want me to tell you? The I truth. The truth. I'm telling you how the did, truth. How, how, did, how, did, how did we get to this point? That's what I need to know. I need to know how and why we got to the point we're at right now. We both know you're not telling me the truth. We both know that. I've done this a long time. I'm looking in your eyes, and I can tell you you're not being truthful, Chris. We need, we need an answer. We need our answers. As bad as this sounds, as bad as this looks, or you may think it looks, 
we understand, and I've talked to many people who have given me reasons, and it's like, you know what, okay, all right, I, I can understand how somebody might have been feeling that at that time. And, and maybe they acted on it, and they shouldn't have, and they regret it. There's no way to turn clocks back. You can't turn clocks back. You understand that, don't you? You can't turn the clock back. The only thing you can do is go forward from this point, and you need to know what and why it happened. Come on, Chris, help me out with this. I'm telling you, I've already told you. I've told everybody. I told the guy in the ambulance. I told you. I told him. The, the more we go back like this, the more it makes me think that there maybe isn't, even isn't a, a good explanation for it. I mean, I mean, we need to know what happened. We can't keep going on this. It didn't, you know, I, she was alive when I left. We know that's not true, and there's nothing we can do about changing that. If we know she wasn't alive when, when, when you left this morning, there's got to be an explanation. Now is the time to tell us. Now is the time to get this out of the open. I, I don't know what else to tell you. Yes, you do. Yes, no. you do. You have to tell me the truth, Chris. I am telling you the truth. You, you, were you involved in her death? No. Okay. Was someone you know involved in her death? I don't know. Did you know, um, did you, did you talk to anybody about arranging her death? No, absolutely not. Investigators thought it was strange. Something didn't quite add up, even before analyzing Chris's events of the morning. Chris had been the target for the hate and the threats over email and through letters to the home. Yet the killer seemingly waited until Chris left that home for his hour window to strike and murder the Coleman family. If Chris was indeed the target, how likely was it that someone stalking the home was so unlucky enough to miss his opportunity by mere minutes? After some sleuthing, police were quickly able to trace the IP address of DestroyChris at gmail.com, the source of the terrible threats. So had they finally found the stalker? Well, kind of. The emails were sent from Chris Coleman's home, and then while examining Sherry's phone, they found text messages between her and a friend where she divulged that Chris had asked her for a divorce and that if anything were to happen to her, that they should look at Chris. In the text messages, Sherry went on further to explain that Chris apparently claimed that she and the kids, Garrett and Gavin, were ruining his career and that she had yelled in an argument, I will never divorce you. I will never leave. What are you going to do? Kill me? Not the best choice of words, considering that the next discovery by investigators was Chris's DNA under Sherry's fingernails. Police began gathering evidence, clearly now concerned that in fact Chris was the one who had killed his own family. That would require a case to be built, for them to have a mountain of evidence to throw at his defense in court, to drown them in Chris's guilt. And luckily for investigators, Chris was really bad at keeping things on the down low. A friend close to Chris Coleman told investigators that while Chris loved his job, he also hated it wildly. Chris felt that Joyce Myers, the televangelist preacher, was living the life of luxury by scamming vulnerable and desperate people earning minimum wage who would ship her vast portions of their paychecks. It was a scam, and that made Chris resentful and angry towards Joyce and his job, despite his deep religious beliefs. 
and their long-standing friendship. And I can't say I disagree with him on that point either. Investigators tracked down Chris's credit card statement next and found that he'd purchased a can of red spray paint a few months before the murders. Bright red spray paint like had been used to adorn the walls in unsettling messages after the murders. Considering Chris Coleman must have planned the murder of his family and thought long and hard about it, he did an amazingly terrible job of hiding it altogether. It seemed as if he didn't even really care to. And somehow that makes it worse. Investigators confiscated Chris's computer and right out in the open found naughty videos filmed in Hawaii. Videos not with his wife, but starring a woman named Tara Linz. And it seemed to police that the two were very fond of producing amateur porn together. The deeply religious Chris was having an affair. And to make it all a little more scandalous than it already was, Tara Linz was also Sherry Coleman's best friend from high school in Florida. And Chris planned to marry her. Tara Linz lived in St. Petersburg, Florida, where police tracked her down and questioned her. In the eyes of the investigators, she had absolutely no involvement in what Chris had done and genuinely didn't know that Chris had intended to kill his wife, Sherry, Tara's high school best friend, and their children. According to Tara, their relationship had started in November 2008, which for the record was the same month that the emails and letters began to arrive. Chris promised Tara that he would give Sherry the divorce papers on the same day that he, well, murdered her. Police also later found out that Chris Coleman had been texting Tara Linz while at his family's funeral, telling her how much he missed her and how much he wanted to be with her, all while his family was being buried. Now, let's get this straight, in case any of you creeps are confused. Chris was having an affair with Tara, who was his wife's high school best friend. The moment he began the affair, he began to threaten himself and his family by sending anonymous emails. Chris planned to divorce his wife, Sherry, and planned to marry Tara, but was unable to convince his wife to get a divorce, or rather lacked the gumption to continue the process. Chris Coleman was also intensely unhappy in his job, which paid a rock star salary, but he was planning to start his own company away from Joyce Myers and her televangelist scam. He wanted a new life, and a new wife, and the most efficient way he had rationalized to himself to get what he thought he deserved was to kill his family. But the noose was tightening around Chris, who couldn't seem to be bothered to even try and fool the police. A neighbor watched Chris walk up to the memorial that the neighborhood had set up in remembrance of his vibrant wife and their fun-loving children, and watched him begin to dismantle it, throwing the flowers and footballs and Lego and letters and all the things people had left into the trash. He just couldn't be bothered to care anymore. Chris Coleman was arrested on May 19th, 2009, only two weeks after the murder of his family. Chris was charged with three counts of murder after the medical examiner was able to determine that his family had been killed no later than 3 a.m. 
nearly three hours before Chris had left the home on the morning of the 5th. When the trial rolled around, Chris Coleman maintained his plea of innocence. Prosecutors said he murdered his family so that he could begin a new life with his mistress Tara and that he was unable to get a divorce because he thought he would lose his job with the Joyce Myers Ministry, which denounced ungodly things such as divorce. There was a sea of evidence against Chris. Of course there was. He'd done it and gotten lazy and apathetic and couldn't care to hide anything. When asked about the emails he had sent to himself, Chris simply said he had been hacked. No more explanation, no prepared statement, just that he had been hacked. Surprisingly, though, when the jury went to deliberation, it seemed more difficult than assumed for them to come to a decision. But when the jury was shown a pile of images taken of Tara and Chris together, some of them very naughty, one of the jurors flipped the picture over to see a date written on the back. Of course, the timestamps on the front of the images had been omitted from evidence in the case, so the prosecution had to have them blacked out. But they missed one on the back of a photo. The date was October 2008. Remember how Tara had said their relationship started in November 2008? This tiny detail, this little mistake, absolutely ruined Chris Coleman's credibility, and it was easy sailing from the jury from there. Chris Coleman was found guilty and sentenced to three life terms with no possibility of parole. But remember how the prosecution had mistakenly let the jury see the date of the photo, which had to be omitted from evidence? Well, in March 2009, a judge granted Chris a chance for a new trial. And thankfully, his appeal for a new trial was ultimately denied. Chris won't be going anywhere anytime soon. So, creeps, that brings us to the end of our tale. If you enjoyed this episode and want more, please consider becoming a Patreon member by visiting patreon.com slash talesbycole, where we release a Patreon-exclusive podcast weekly for Patreon members generous enough to donate $5 or more. If you have some time on your hands, please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. They are so incredibly important in getting these stories out there. And even more importantly, every five-star review gets me one step closer to moving out of my mother's basement. You can also join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Tales by Cole. This episode was written and narrated by me, Cole Weavers, and sound production and editing by Matt Black. Remember, creeps, take care of one another, stay safe, and don't forget to lock the doors. <laughs>